It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a time of temerity in a troublesome world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, co-founder of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200 articles, more than that, podcasts and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. I'm purveyor of some of the highest quality medical kits on the planet at store.doomandbloom.net. Not to mention the hostess with the mostess. <laughs> yep, you know what? We can spout the conventional or even the unconventional type of medical wisdom, which is what it may take for your family to be medically self-reliant in times of trouble like we're experiencing now. But before we start, you better listen to this. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please. That's right. I'm going to shut the door because the bird is yakking. Okay, shut the door. Or as we say in French, jet the, the door, madame. All right. All now right. the yakky bird will not be heard in the background. There you go. Well, you know what? When modern medicine's get up and go has gotten up and went, mm -hmm. well, somebody's got to pick up the flag and make sure that everybody gets medically prepared. And that is your job out there. I want you to make sure that you're committed to being as prepared as you possibly can for pandemics, for natural disasters, man-made disasters, pretty much just about anything. Hey, you know, if you're reading the headlines, you're probably hearing that as the country slowly reopens. We're seeing many more people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s getting coronavirus and a lot of fear being spread around about second waves. Now, this is no surprise to me, but I want people to realize, if you haven't already, that the grand majority of the people getting coronavirus now much more, much younger and getting milder cases or even being asymptomatic and just ending up with a positive COVID test for one reason or another. They aren't seeing, except in a couple of areas, in a couple of areas, yes, but in most areas, they're not seeing a lot more severe cases that require ventilators like they did in the earlier part of the pandemic. Thank goodness. Now, I follow this uh, site, <coughs> Worldometer, worldometer.info, uh, and that has a running count of coronavirus cases and of open cases, people who haven't yet recovered. In other words, active cases of coronavirus, only 1.5% are in serious condition. This is not good, of course, but it's much less than the 5% that were in serious condition a month ago and the 15% we saw in the original statistics when the pandemic began in China. Wait, let me just say something real quick before people go looking up this website. It's actually called World of Meter, but the website meter must have been taken, so it's World O meters.info there you go so the actual uh, link has an s at the end all right and they have a coronavirus specific clip, a, a site a page and just yep. click that perfect and you can and you can see that of the active cases that there's about a 1.5 percent uh severe case 
number out of all the active cases. Now, of all the cases that have been closed that either ended in recovery or death, it's currently at 9%. But, and that sounds bad, but it was actually at 21% at one point. just a month or so, that's a couple, right. maybe a couple of months ago. That's true. So this is something that's very important. You really have to realize that things are indeed getting better in terms of the severity, but a lot of people are getting uh, flu-like uh, COVID infections that are younger in the younger age groups. And that's because the younger age groups make up the majority of the workforce. As the workforce goes back into circulation, a percentage of those people will get hopefully mild or asymptomatic, asymptomatic cases. Right. They're of course going to be, and, and I, I totally admit that there will be some severe cases that are coming up. And I'm sure there are people that are going, that may still die from this, but you really have to realize that all this doesn't count. The millions that have gotten the disease were asymptomatic or walk around just fine today and never actually sought medical care or had medical care at home. Had no idea. That's right. Everybody should know that the second and third waves of this, and up, oh, yeah, I actually said third wave. Yep, I believe the third wave and a second, second, third waves are inevitable as more people get out and about. But the country has to start getting moving, moving again. Really have to get back to work because our adversaries on the world stage are moving on. Vladimir Putin held a victory parade in Moscow and declared that Russia has turned a corner and will soon return to normal. China is already pretty much back in full gear, although I think they closed one area in Beijing out that because it had uh, a second wave. But they're pretty much moving right along, and they're an awfully big country. So, you know, given this, the question is, can we spend the next year just hiding in our homes? Listen, wear masks if you can't social distance, but we cannot be on sick leave as in, a country. Indefinitely. Right, exactly. We've got to get moving again, and a second and third wave, already inevitable, is just part and parcel of any pandemic. With severe and fatal cases becoming less frequent, we should get as many of that young and healthy people with masks, with social distancing as much as possible, back to work. And we should take politics out of this. Pandemics and election years divide a nation even more than we're divided now. That's really saying something. We've got to objectively take the risks and benefits of reopening and come up with a plan of action that doesn't have anything to do with kicking out or keeping the current administration. Just remember the three W's as we get things going again. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance. Good for you. Did you make that up? No, somebody else. <laughs> I don't. I hadn't heard the three W's. I'm a parrot. I just I repeat like what it. other people say. No, yeah, no, no, I no. like that though. Right. You know what? You're here to bring relevant news to folks so they don't have to go searching for it. True that. That's right. And speaking of which, in the news, The Lancet, a peer-reviewed medical journal, very famous in Great Britain, published a 96 thousand subject study indicting the effectiveness of the politically controversial hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 patients. They indeed retracted part of its own findings, specifically the part that says that the malaria medication led to an increased risk of death. Three of the authors of the paper, which was called hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine with or without a macrolide, that's a uh, antibiotic like azithromycin for treatment of COVID-19, a multinational registry analysis. That's a mouthful. They have retracted their study, the Lancet said in a statement last week. They were unable to complete an independent audit of the data that was underpinning their analysis. Aha! In other words, they could not independently show that there was indeed 
a increased risk of death from taking normal doses of uh, hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. So they've concluded they can't vouch for the veracity, the truth, of the primary data sources. They actually said, we deeply apologize, but they, of course, they say apologize with an S. Yeah. That's the British way. To, to you, the editors, and the journal readership for any embarrassment or inconvenience that this may have caused. Boy, that must have been a tough letter oh, to write. Oh, to swallow, right? Wow. Tough pill to swallow. <laughs> this study was first published in May. It was the largest conducted so far to evaluate the impacts of hydroxychloroquine after President Donald Trump was reported to be taking the medication as a precautionary measure uh, following possible exposure to the virus. Meanwhile, the media, with its loathing for Trump, of course, used the study to attack the president and his physician for taking what is an inexpensive drug that had anecdotally shown promise in treatment of at least early infection while posing few risks. So be clear, using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin is unlikely to kill you at normal doses, at least. And that's according to the authors of this report. Still no word about whether researchers understand the importance to include zinc which has the main antiviral effect in any combination drug that seeks to cure coronavirus. The, the study started in April that does, but these results are not going to be available until after the November election. Many scientists are climbing over each other to be the loudest voice against using chloroquines. The FDA has decided to end its emergency use authorization for chloroquines in the treatment of COVID-19. The FDA on Monday withdrew authorizations for these medications, meaning that even donated chloroquine-type drugs are not approved for use, even in the milder cases in which they are probably most effective. Bayer, the German drug manufacturer, had donated millions of doses early in the epidemic. I'm sure they're now sitting in warehouses oh or going, going out terrible. with the trash. Get the forklift out and take Ugh. chloroquines and just... Throw millions of dollars worth well, of that maybe into we'll the act, garbage. Maybe we'll actually get some sound studies. I think we all have to realize that, for the most part, pretty much the hydroxychloroquine, th these kind of drugs, were the only treatment that was really out there that even had anecdotal evidence for success. And so I don't see, in the especially in the early going, why it was such a problem to, you know, force the FDA to actually approve the use of this stuff. and But I understand that, you know, after some studies say that it's not that effective that they would maybe drop that. But the problem is that they'll have all these donated doses of hydroxychloroquine and they're all just going in the garbage and they might actually have an effect on prevention. They might have an effect in early cases or very mild cases. I'm not saying that necessarily... If you take a chloroquine pill, that you're going to get off the uh, the ventilator, ventilator immediately, the right? Next day, but the truth of the matter is that's something that is inexpensive, able to be dealt with. You know, cost is does make a difference here. Uh, the drug they're using right now, remdesivir, costs several hundred dollars a dose and is in limited supply. And, he, and a man in Seattle who survived the COVID disease, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Had, was just given a bill for more than a million bucks. <gasps> <laughs> and that probably didn't include the remdesivir, which was oh, probably donated by the country, that uh, by Gilead, the uh, company that makes it. Well, my visit to just get a test and have a chest x-ray, and I think I was in that tent for, how long was I in there? Maybe two hours? Mm -hmm. How long did you wait in the car for me? 
two hours or two hour hours I think it was two, two whole hours that's the kind of husband i am six hundred and fifty three dollars wow and i don't think that was including the radiologist bill so three hundred which i think was another few hundred so it was at least a thousand dollars so 500 bucks an hour oh boy yeah that is something. for a, a swab test that that was I don't know, not done well. <laughs> and a chest x-ray that I negative. had Came sitting in negative. a chair. Yes. Outside. It was yes. the most unpleasant experience. experience you well, it was really hot and very humid, and I'm outside having an x-ray. Yeah, it was not pleasant. But anyway. Crazy, baby. Now, the good thing is that uh, chloroquines are approved for other uses, like lupus and arthritis and preventing malaria. Doctors still can use it off-label to treat coronavirus patients. Now, this happens when a drug is used for something other than its approved use. And believe it or not, this kind of thing happens not very uncommonly. It happens often. I used myself in my obstetric practice many years ago a certain drug that was used to treat asthma because the side effect was that it stopped uterine contractions that were associated with premature labor. Yep. So it saved the number of babies as that might have been born very, very early by using this medication. So eh. the, the FDA also says, by the way, that clinical trials examining chloroquines can continue. So the uh, version of chloroquine that has been authorized for emergency use no longer approved in the U.S. So the truth of the matter is, is that we're not going to get any more of it. But luckily, it is a relatively common drug and it's relatively inexpensive. So being clear, using hydroxychloroquine as azithromycin, unlikely to kill somebody, according to this study, uh, the retraction, with a relatively healthy heart at normal doses, and that's according to the authors of the report. Still, the FDA has given authorization, first for political purposes and now for equally political purposes, withdrawn authorization to use it. So what can I tell you? You have to decide what where you stand on that political side but from a medical side i want all the options that i can get that might possibly help somebody in a in this situation and just remember zinc what about zinc if you can get the zinc in that combination of drugs the effects might be more positive that's right there you go don't forget the zinc the missing zinc <laughs> i know someone who wrote an article called the missing zinc that's right i sure did and I a think video it was a video too yeah i, I forget <laughs> oh my gosh Hey, let's talk about something non-COVID related. For okay. We haven't done that Sounds often awesome. enough, I think. I love it. Now, I recently wrote an article called Suture Basics for the Off-Grid Medic, and I gave some thought on suture materials, especially as they apply to closing skin lacerations. Some, this is something that I talked about on a recent podcast as well. Remember, your skin is your armor, and anything that breaches it can cause a life-threatening infection. Now, although the decision to close a wound should never be automatic, simple skin lacerations, honestly, can often be cleaned and closed successfully by the off-grid medic. And, and that's a skill that you might want to learn. Sutures are just one of a number of ways to accomplish this goal, though. I mean, there are other ways, staples and glues and uh, steri-strips, things like that. Uh, but closing a wound that's clean allows acceleration of the healing process. And so today I want to talk a little bit about the qualities of suture needles. Suture needles are made of a stainless steel alloy that's sometimes coated with silicon to permit an easier penetration of tissue. As three sections, the needle does, uh, the point, the mid portion or body, and the swage. 
The swage, S-W-A-G-E, is the end of the needle and is where the thread is attached and crimped. The mid portion is usually curved at an arc and the point is, well, uh, pointy. <laughs> it's where you pierce the skin there you or go. whatever organ, or organ you are you're piercing. <laughs> yes, part of the body you are trying to repair. Now, before about 1920, suture needles had eyes and string was separate. The surgeon had to actually thread the eye of the needle. And but since then, sutures became a single continuous unit from this process called swaging and which they had basically a hollowed out end of the needle put the string in there, crimp it, and bingo, for the first time you have a single continuous unit of, of needle and string. And swaging dealt with a lot of disadvantages that were associated with the use of separate needles and thread, which required having, for example, two lengths of string on either side of the eye, right? When you thread the needle, you got a string on one side, a string on the other. Passage of a double strand of suture through tissue led to more tissue trauma and sometimes a higher risk of infection. Also, the suture string was less likely to become unthreaded or frayed than with eyed needles. So, in other words, swaging helped keep the integrity of the string, the tensile strength of the string, and also maybe decrease the risk of infection and led to less tissue trauma. Now, suture needles performed based on a number of qualities, including strength and sharpness. Those are the two main ones, but there are others. The strength of a needle refers to its resistance to being deformed, bent, and things like that during use. So, and that, by doing that, you're limiting the amount of trauma to tissue as well as trauma to the needle itself. Sharpness measures the ease of penetration into tissue, and it's dependent on factors that involve not only the point, but the shape of the body of the needle. I'll talk about that in a second. Now, just as the perfect suture thread has ideal characteristics, the ideal suture needle would be made of high-quality stainless steel alloy, it would be the smallest diameter possible for the need, stable in the grasp of the needle holder, the not not you, the needle holder, the instrument, the needle holder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding the needle. That's true. <laughs> Capable of implanting suture material through tissue with minimal trauma, sharp enough to penetrate tissue with minimal resistance, and sterile and corrosion resistant enough to prevent introduction of microbes or foreign debris into the wound. The shape of the noodle of uh, the noodle. The shape of the suture noodle. What do you think of that? <laughs> Boy, I lost. I want to see somebody <clears throat> try to suture with a noodle. I lost. I Maybe lost an that. uncooked noodle. <laughs> hey, listen, an that might uncooked be. needle. How about an al, al dente? <laughs> That's sort of hard. That's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, the shape of the suture needle on cross section varies dependent on your particular need. There are cutting needles, quote unquote. Uh, and the point of this shape is to have more cutting edges. On cross-section, if you cut it right in the, the center, it usually appears triangular. The, the point also is triangular too. So you have three separate little cutting edges, microscope, tiny, tiny cutting edges that are effective in penetrating thick, pretty firm tissue like skin. Uh, there are two common types of cutting needles. There's conventional and reverse. Conventional cutting needles have the third edge of the triangle on the inner surface of the, of the needle, on the concave part of the arc of the needle. Reverse cutting needles have the third edge of the triangle on the outer surface of the, or convex surface of the needle's arc. The reverse edge is even stronger and able to penetrate really tough tissue like tendons and other very tough tissues while decreasing the amount of trauma during the procedure. 
Now there are needles that are round on cross-section, we call those tapered needles, and these can pass through tissue by stretching more than cutting. A sharp tip at the point flattens to sort of an oval or rectangular shape at by the time you get to the end of the tissue. And so we consider this to be less traumatic and good for delicate tissues like uh, intestinal lining and organs, maybe liver or other kind of tissue, but even better in some of these circumstances are blunt needles. So blunt needles actually don't come to a point. They're actually rounded at the end, but are still able to, because they're metal and organs are not, are possible to use for suturing like the liver or the kidney uh, or other delicate organ tissue without causing excessive bleeding. So the body of the needle is very important to interact with the needle holder instrument and the ability to easily transfer the penetrating force of your motion to the skin. A needle has to be stable in the jaws of the needle holder to give you maximum control and prevent bending. Right. If it's too flexible, you aren't going to be able to pierce the skin. It's going to be moving all over the place. That's right. Now, the body shape is oftentimes, for, especially when we teach people, it's going to be like a 3 8 circle arc for uh, the skin or half circle for close spaces. So the shape of the arc of the needle is different. And of course, uh, there are other curvatures that are available. Straight needles actually can be used also. I, I use straight needles to close skin uh, in, in the old days when I, I used to close cesarean section or hysterectomy scars, things like that. Uh, straight needles are indeed something that you can use, but only for very, very shallow types of straight uh, closures. The half in, the half circle closure, that is something that's better for something deep in somebody's belly, for example. Next time we'll talk a little bit about surgical, not only needles and surgical string, but also the needle holder instrument itself and the importance of using that and loading, an in, uh, loading a needle properly and also uh, using the appropriate force with regards to doing uh, skin closures. Now, just recently, we've seen a lot of mass protests that are relating to incidents with police. Now, most of these are peaceful, thank goodness. Some not so peaceful. If you believe in law and order, all of these efforts to defund police departments have got to be scary. And the news makes it seem that everybody wants law enforcement out of their neighborhoods. I'm not one of these people. No. I'll tell you that much. And I hope, honestly... Patrol all they want. That's... I have no problem with it. That's right. We want a nice, peaceful neighborhood. We will hope that you're... Uh, not one of these folks will want to defund the police completely. Certainly, this is something that is a recipe for disaster. And when we talk about disasters a lot on this yes, show. Yes, that's true. Well, anyhow, it's becoming clearer to me that the streets, especially city streets, are becoming less safe than ever before. And, you know, who would have thought that they might live in an area that might become an, quote-unquote, autonomous zone? Okay? Maybe during the Civil War, <laughs> but not, not now. That's for darn sure. Uh, well, so the bottom line with this is that... We could have more violence. That's right. There could be more violence and therefore more injuries, and we have to, we have to talk about it. Now, uh, where the politicians aren't on the side of law enforcement that puts the, that law enforcement officer in harm's way with one hand tied behind his or her back, that's bad. And so unless you're the local crime boss, you're just not going to benefit from this kind of stuff happening in your area, and it could be hazardous to your health. Exactly. So I want people to that might find themselves in areas of civil unrest to have some medical supplies with them that can deal with injuries and other kinds of problems. Now, 
So this might include a kit that has tourniquet with uh, that, that can stop bleeding and maybe contain dressings that can be used to cover burns, abrasions, or just as protection for an area of broken skin. As I said before, your skin's your armor. Any breach in it exposes you to infection, not just the wound itself, but an infection that can travel into your bloodstream and make you very sick. So what's the first thing that you think about with riots in terms of injury? For me, it's tear gas. Yes. The effects of tear gas, right? Yep. Uh, typical riot control agents like tear gas are delivered by either a spray or a grenade canister shot from a gun, a special gun that's made to uh, propel these things. Now, you really don't want to be hit by one of these canisters because they're hazardous in and of themselves as they can generate a lot of heat and cause nasty burns if you handle them. Uh, if they're fired at close range, they can cause serious damage to a person's body. I think this is... I think it's very rare, but you get hit just right or just wrong, and it could be fatal. But how does tear gas itself work? Now, when chemicals used in tear gas react with moisture, they cause a burning sensation. Your eyes are moist, right? And so this causes particular peril to the eyes, the skin, and of course, if you breathe it in, into the lungs. I recently found out, by the way, that oil-based creams and sunscreens and makeup could possibly also absorb tear gas and make the situation worse. Wow. So avoid I wearing... I had no idea. Yeah, so avoid wearing these anywhere where tear gas might indeed be used. By the way, if you should avoid being in any area where tear gas might be used. Exactly. Period. Leave the area if possible. Now, tearing and burning of eyelids and throat, that and, and, and excessive coughing, these are all reactions to tear gas. You get an excess of mucus that's coming from the nose, from the eyelids, to the throat. That's also very common. And people often report they feel dizzy and disoriented just after breathing it in. Now, tear gas attacks the lungs as well. If you suffer from any respiratory disease, including asthma, you really got to consider the potentially dangerous effects this may have on your situation. And you are definitely not someone you want to be in a crowd like this. The major effects of tear gas, thank goodness, wear off within an hour, although the feeling of burning a highly irritated skin may persist much longer than that. So how do you protect yourself? A gas mask is the best tool to protect yourself. We actually got a couple of gas masks we did. as a gift, a gag gift, haha, from know, one of our right? children. But <laughs> they were actually pretty good, nice gas masks. <laughs> They're not cheap, though. They're subject to restrictions and regulations in some countries. In the U.S., you can get them without a license. Uh, a gas mask consists of a rubber mask with a canister and a filter fitted to the side, or actually mostly, both, usually both sides, Make sure you have a spare canister as they do need changing after several hours, and especially if they've absorbed any chemicals. Now, if you already have a gas mask, you have to make sure it's working properly, it's properly fitted so that it's nice and tight. Um, you can also use, if you don't have a gas mask, a builder's or painter's respirator mask, sometimes called an elastomeric mask. Sometimes it cover, covers the entire face, which is good because it protects your uh, nose, your mouth, and your eyes. If you don't have that, at least a dust mask and airtight goggles will provide some degree of protection. Uh, better than nothing, but obviously not as good as the other stuff I mentioned. Now, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about tear gas. And so here's some methods that don't do much good. If you soak a bandana or cloth in apple cider vinegar and tightly cover your mouth with it, you're probably not going to get any protection to counter the effects of tear gas, regardless of what people have said. Smearing lime or lemon juice on the inside of a cloth and covering your mouth with it, well, that supposedly works on the same principle as the vinegar, but again, probably does not work. Soaking a bandana in water, tightly covering your mouth with it, well, 
in, in general, you would think that would be good, but many uh, riot control agents come in the form of crystals which react with water. So using small amounts of water, like a wet handkerchief, immediately after exposure to gas, especially what they call CS gas, I can, I can barely pronounce what the actual name here, chlorobenzalidine malonitrile. Wow. <laughs> I know it's a I heck got, of a word. <laughs> I know I got it wrong. But anyhow, they, the exposure to this kind of gas is likely to reactivate these their crystals um, if you expose them to water and may prolong the effects. Now, some people think that smashing up charcoal and lining a wet bandana with the dust and tightly covering nose and mouth with it helps. Supposedly filters out ga uh, the CS gas, but there's no real evidence to support this. Some people suggest smearing toothpaste under your eyes. I have never heard of that. Uh, and I guess riot control agents and toothpaste all made up from a wide range of chemicals, different manufacturing methods, all sorts of variations. That's sort of difficult to predict the reactions that would take place. I would think that it doesn't make much of a difference. Now, some people suggest sniffing a freshly cut onion. If I do that, I start crying already. So it's like the effect of tear gas <laughs> with me. Um, it, honestly, just sniffing it and getting it close to your eyes doesn't reduce the irritation. It's just likely to make you cry, just as you it might when you're peeling it. So now you know what probably doesn't work. What will actually work if you get tear gassed? The folks that make mace pepper spray suggest a solution of baking soda or at least cool water to use on your eyes and flush yourself, uh, flush your eyes out really, really well. Uh, some people believe in using milk or liquid antacid. That data isn't as solid, however. <clears throat> If you have a gas mask or a mask and goggles, you should put them on. And certainly before you get into an area where there's uh, tear gas, you may be able to continue to function in that situation, but you should get the heck out of there and get into some fresh air as soon as you possibly can. Be aware that you will still need to wash yourself and all clothes as the gas will remain on you, your clothes, and your equipment for a good long while. You may have to wash an item many times if it's an item of clothing or honestly just chuck it if you have no protection at least cover your mouth and nose with a handkerchief or cloth or use the inside of your shirt or coat to protect your airway I, and i repeat the inside because the outside of your jacket is likely to be contaminated and make it worse most riot control agents by the way are heavier than air so if you can get to high ground that would help doesn't have much down here in south florida high ground here is about a foot above sea level <laughs> is that <laughs> that's right i don't know i i think if we go, I know out here, just right in front of where we are right now, six inches down. Yeah, <laughs> water a table, small right? Small hole for a a tree. Hard to believe, isn't it? And it filled up with water like a pond. <laughs> crazy, <laughs> to baby. Two inches of the top. It was crazy. <laughs> well, if there is high ground where you are, please get there as soon as possible. Any exposed skin, wash it with soap and water. Shower first in cold water, then warm. Don't use the tub, though. You need to get that contaminated water to go down the drain immediately. And don't rub your eyes or face. This may reactivate any tear gas crystals that may be on you. Of course, not rubbing your eyes or face is a good thing to do in a pandemic. Uh -huh. Anyhow, right. oh, I said I wasn't going to talk about COVID-19. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I lied. Well, it is part of our, you know, history and our, our recent situation. So it kind of infects every get it infects <laughs> ah, ha, ha. infects everything that we talk about <laughs> there you go well that's all the time that we have for this week's survival medicine podcast we hope that you enjoyed it and will join us every week see you next time
Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.